Thanks for joining us for today's message. Here at Temple Baptist, we're a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Well, good morning, everyone. So good to see you. Thank you for being here. It's so good to have you join us as we continue our series, Surfing Through the Psalms. I, I personally have found the series refreshing myself, and I'm so thankful for Pastor Dave, Pastor Glenn, and other guests who have helped us through this teaching series this summer. Uh, it has been said that we don't read so much the Bible as the Bible actually reads us. And there's no place that that is truer than in the book of Psalms. It, it exposes our hearts and it lays us bare before Almighty God. It, it talks uh, of grief and sorrow and fears and doubts and hopes and cares and perplexities and distraction emotions of the mind. In other words, the Psalms uh, help express the emotions in our life. You know, discouragement, maybe depression, anxiety, love, joy, uh, praise. Uh, some of the psalms, uh, the psalmist cries out to God in the middle of a trial. And others, they're, they're asking for God's intervention in the affairs of their life. Uh, some focus on blessing, some on cursing, some on praise for the wonderful things that God has done. It is all um, a part of the Bible that really we ought to invest in, in reading and studying over and over again. The, the purpose of the Psalms originally were designed for uh, public worship in Israel's uh, temple, although some seem more suitable for private um, devotions. However, all of them ultimately point us to worship God Almighty. And, and the psalmists, are, they, they passionately uh, record uh, the person's response to God in, in their circumstances and in their situations. The Psalms, they, they also stir us up to worship. They, they depict God's great and amazing deliverances of his people. In fact, John Calvin said this, there is no other book in which we are more perfectly taught the right manner of praising God. The more that we read Psalms, the more that we study Psalms, the more regularly it stirs up worship and prayer and it makes us transparent before God Almighty. And one of the other things that I personally am learning as we're studying through the Psalms, I'm learning to fresh um, how, how to pray. It teaches us how to talk uh, to God. George Mueller, widely considered one of the greatest men of prayer and faith since the writing of the New Testament, a man who started five orphanages and in his lifetime looked after 10,000 orphans, said it was, it was the scriptures that made my prayer life come alive again. And no better book than the book of Psalms, to kindle our prayer life because it gives us vocabulary for adoration and confession and thanksgiving and supplication. It's no wonder people spend time in the Psalms. The Psalms are, are rich and, and people gravitate towards them because they can completely relate to what the psalmist is thinking and, and what he's feeling. It also expands our faith because we really do see the goodness of God. Collectively, there's like 150 uh, chapters, making it the longest book in the Bible. It contains the shortest chapter, and it contains the longest chapter, and it's right in the very center of our Bibles. The New Testament quotes Psalms over 75 times, uh, a number of times in the Gospels, Acts, 14 times Paul uses it in the book of Romans. 
And the Psalms are, many of them are prophetic in nature. Now, what do I mean by that is they predict, actually, the, the events and the life of Christ. We, we call them Messianic Psalms. In fact, in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus is talking to his disciples after the resurrection. And he said, the things that have been foretold, the things that have been prophesied, the things that have been predicted about me were all talked about in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. In fact, I, I, I have like three pages uh, right here that I, I wrote down of just things that were predicted about Jesus in the Psalms. Let me just read a couple of, of them to you. First of all, the Messiah was going to be called by God while he was still in the womb. That's Psalm 22. The Messiah would be called the King of the Jews. That's Psalm 2. The Messiah would be called the Son of God. That's also found in Psalm 2. The Messiah would be the stone rejected by the builders. That's Psalm 118. The Messiah that he would teach actually in parables. That's in Psalms 79. That the Messiah would, would calm the storms. That's Psalm 107. That the Messiah would come in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, that the Messiah would be forsaken and actually crucified, a crucifixion. That's Psalm 22, that the Messiah would be despised and rejected by his own. That's Psalm 22, that the Messiah would be abandoned by his own disciples. That's Psalm 22, that the Messiah's body that would flow with water and blood. That the Messiah would be crucified, that, that the Messiah would be thirsty while he's dying, that the Messiah's hands and feet would actually be pierced, that the Messiah actually would cry out to God, into thy hands I have commit my spirit, that the Messiah would have no broken bones, that the Messiah would be silent as a lamb brought uh, before the accusers, that the Messiah would be offered gall mingled with vinegar while dying, Psalm 69. That the Messiah would be resurrected, Psalm 16. That the Messiah would be exalted at the right hand of the Father, Psalm 80. They're so specific. They're not general predictions that say, well, there's a man coming. We hope he's going to be born in our country. He's going to live a good life. You see how specific these are called messianic prophecies because they're predicting exactly what's going to take place in the life of Christ. I find it absolutely amazing. And this morning we're going to be looking at Psalms, actually chapter 90. It's, it's one of the more well-known Psalms because many times it's read in funerals. See, Psalm 90 speaks so directly to the limits of mortal lives and the timeless dimension of God's power and love. You may not know this, but Psalm 90 is written by Moses making it one, the oldest psalm in the book, probably going back as far as 3,000 years or even older. We often think of David as the author of psalms, and, and rightfully so because he writ, wrote over half of them. But there are other authors, David and Moses, Solomon, Aspa, the sons of Korah, um, Ethan the Ezraite, multiple authors of psalms. And, and as we this morning look at Psalms 90, uh, I'd like for you to imagine, as we read through this, Moses and the people of Israel out in the wilderness, that it would take 40 years to actually reach the promised land. Almost everybody who left Egypt, almost everybody, 40 years have died during the Exodus. And this is a large group of people, in fact, in Exodus chapter 12, I think 37, it says there were 600,000 men 
besides women and children. Some suggest that as many as two and a half million people wandering in the wilderness as they make their way to the promised land. It was an arduous journey, fraught with pain, and it taught Moses two things, which we're going to discover here in Psalm 90. Number one, the frailty of life. And number two, the sovereignty of God. It gave him a healthy perspective of how temporal this world is compared to the eternal nature of God. And my hope is this morning that we will walk away with the exact same perspective as I think we'll be able to discover it here in chapter 9. It really is a matter of life and death. So if you have your Bibles, open to Psalm, Psalm chapter 90. Fairly easy to find. Just open your Bible in the dead center, and it should fall right open to Psalms. Psalm 90. Follow along as I read. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning, though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it's dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. All of our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years or, or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, but they quickly pass and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger for your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, O Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as, you, as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of your hands for us. Yes, establish the work of your hands for us. Father, we thank you for just simply the reading of your word. And I pray this morning, God, that the words on these pages, this Psalm 90, that it would ring true in our own heart and mind this morning as we wrestle with this whole idea of life and death, how frail life can be, and yet how eternal you are. So God, we pray that we'll sense your presence right here during these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. You've often heard the expression, seize the day. We've entitled this message, squeeze the day. <laughs> and get everything out of it that you possibly can, the day that has been given to you. Moses says right here, Lord, you've been our dwelling place for all generations. When Moses is speaking, he's not talking about a specific 
a dwelling place. He's talking about really uh, the relationship, not a particular location, which is hard for us to, to grasp because when we think of a dwelling place, we think of something tangible, something concrete, something that actually has a permanent uh, address, you know, a, a structure, a physical address. But that's not what Moses is talking about when he says that you have been our dwelling place. And we kind of know what that means because where you dwell is not necessarily where you live at the moment. It's where your heart is. It's where your passion is, which may be far different where you are at the moment. We've all seen those bumper stickers that say, I'd rather be golfing. I'd rather be fishing. I'd rather be quilting. I'd rather be crocheting. I'd rather be baking. I'd rather be sipping coffee. You know, you may be behind a desk or driving a, a truck, but you long to be on top of a, the peak of a mountain or leisurely uh, by a quiet stream. That's where you'd rather be. And here they are. They're out in the desert. They, they have no place. They're just going from place to place with no really roof over their head, just kind of tents, and, and was, which is what the people did. They lived in tents. They, they didn't have the luxury of comfortable homes. They lived more or less out in the open, and, and such they spent time with the Lord. And, and they looked to God to, to provide the manna for them, their food. They, they looked to God to, that water would come from a rock. In fact, I was reading this week, they, they were talking about the people of, in, in the wilderness, and, and, and some scholar said, well, this must be an exaggeration. There's no way that the Sinai Desert could even sustain 600,000 people. So it must be an exaggeration. But they don't take into account it as that God actually provided the food for the people. Yes, it is a miracle every day that 2 million people could be fed and water provided for them. And so there they are, totally dependent upon God to protect them from their predators and from warring tribes. They, they prayed to God that he would be a shield for them from disease and natural disasters. They walked, with God, they walked by faith for so long that it just became a way of life. So what does it really matter where we are, where we're living? All that matters is that God was with them and leading them. And so that's why Moses prayed, Lord, you have been our dwelling place for all of our generations, before the mountains were brought forth, before you have formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you're our God. And the more your dwelling place is the Lord, the more your thoughts and your feelings and your passions, they get rooted in God, his word, his example, his spirit at work within you. And the more really you experience the fullness of life in any given moment. And then Moses goes on to say, you turn man to destruction. You sweep them away as they sleep. In the morning they sprout like new grass. In the morning it sprouts and springs up. By evening it withers and, and dry. Listen, life is short is what Moses is saying and often so unpredictable. I don't know if you ever think about how long you're going to live. None of us know, but one thing I do know for sure, none of us are going to live forever. And that's why Moses said down there right in verse 10, the days of our years are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80 years. Yet their pride but labor and sorrow, for it passes quickly and we fly away. God is eternal, but, but we're not. And in the grand scheme of things, our, our time on earth is, is really like a blimp, a blip on, on the radar. I mean, just go out to any cemetery and just begin to read some of the names. Some may be more known than others. They all lived at one time or another, made their contribution, but every single one 
died. And when it comes to death and dying, I think all of us, all of us, myself, we, we live with a certain amount of, of denial. We, we know what's going to happen, but it's just so hard for us to fathom this world without us. I mean, how could the world go on without us? Only God is eternal. So as I began to wrestle through that Psalm 90 there where, where he says, teach us to number our days. Our, life is short. I, I began to think about what one preacher said. Plan for tomorrow as if you're going to live forever, but live today as though it's your last. Moses prayed it this way. Just teach us to number our days so that we may have a heart of wisdom. In fact, over in Psalm 39, it echoes the same thing. Lord, show me my end. What is the measure of my days? Let me know how frail I am. Psalm 39, 4. I don't know if you've ever known someone who had a, a close call, a brush with death. You know, someone who was in an accident that really could have killed him. I, I was thinking about that this week. I had a friend of mine named John Carter. He was riding his motorcycle and uh, his black back tire's blue. It's a brand new tire. He doesn't know how it happened, but he's going, you know, 65, 70 miles an hour down the highway, and it just blew, and it flipped his bike onto the side, and as he's going down the highway trying to hold onto his bike, he could see a truck coming. And as his bike was crossing over the double lines, he, he kind of just let go of his bike, and that bike kind of hit that truck, and it, it blew up. And as he was rolling down the highway, somehow it ripped off his leather coat, it took off his boots, and when I went to visit him in the hospital, just black and blue and broken bones, he says to me, I guess it just wasn't my time. <laughs> and there's a certain truth to that, isn't there? It's found in Psalm 139, where it talks about how God created us and how we are fearfully and wonderfully made. But listen, it goes on to say this. For you form me, my inmost beings, you knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame wasn't hidden from you when I was made in secret. Your eyes saw my body. In your book, they were all written. The days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was none of them. Before I was even born, God knew, had our days numbered. No one knows for sure how long. Some of you may be living here for years and years and years. It's possible that for some of us it may be our last day. I went online and did one of those surveys, you know, where they kind of ask you your, your BMI, uh, ask you your weight, ask you, you know, what's your diet, are you a smoker, are you a drinker, are you, you know, active, uh, do you have a stressful job? And then they put all that information together and they tell you when you're going to die. <laughs> so... It told me that I'm going to die on Tuesday, March 30th, 2038. So my days are numbered. The reality is we just need to remember we're not going to live forever. And if we want to be wise, let's learn to count our days. Let's squeeze everything possible in them. What is ultimately uh, that we need to think about that's important is not how long you live, but really how well you live. And when I say well, I don't mean your fame and fortune and wealth, but 
how well you live with your deep and abiding relationship with God. So friends, make, your, make the Lord your dwelling place and you will find that your life will be complete. This summer, I turned, I can't even believe it's true, but I turned 55. And as one of my friends said to me, wow, you have a lot less years ahead of you than you do behind you. <laughs> I was like, thank you, Catherine. But it isn't that true. I have a limited number of years. So how am I going to live them? How are we going to live them? No, we have a limit number of days. So a couple weeks ago, I'm lying in my bed. I don't know if this ever happens to you. You're just lying. And, you're, and your mind begins to wander. And I remember thinking to myself, I was kind of overwhelmed by this sense uh, of a gratefulness to God as I looked at the first part of my life. I thought, man, I have a family that loves me. I have friends that care for me. I work with some of the greatest people on this earth. Love my job. I have this incredible spiritual legacy that has been passed down to me. And then I began to think that's my past, but now perhaps you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'll have another 20 or 30 years, but after that I know that one day I'll stand before God and give an account of my life. So I begin to think, if God should give me 20 more years or 30 more years, I realize I'll still cling to what Christ accomplished on the cross as my hope, that I do know. But as I laid in my bed, I just became, I said, I, I, I was so determined, I said, to live in such a way not for selfish ambition. I said, Donald, don't live with that selfish ambition. But live in a way that, for God's purpose and his glory. And I don't say that to be pious or some super spiritual person because that's not who I am. But at that moment, I was just overwhelmed. I wanted my life to count. Whether I have a week left or 10 years or 30 years, I just wanted it to count and then I began to think, I realize I have many people to serve, but I only have one to please. And so I began to determine that, that the call on my life would be the only criteria that I would use to judge if I had a successful life, even if there's even such a term. I don't know if that's even such a term. You know, sometimes I, I, I get excited and, and overwhelmed at the same time when, when I think of the people that we need to win to Jesus, the churches that need to be planted, the leaders that need to be trained. And I begin to think that I just want to give God my, my five loaves and two fishes and let him do with whatever he can possible. So as I lie in that bed that night, I just said, Lord, teach me to number my days so that I got to have a heart of wisdom and knowing what to do. And as I lied there, I, a song actually came to mind that I had learned maybe, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago. And let me just read it to you. It's actually found in Psalm 133. Verse 1, it says, How good and pleasant it is 
when brothers and sisters live together in unity. How good. How pleasant. It gives pleasure when brothers and sisters get to live in unity. In fact, in Ephesians 1, uh, 1 through 3, it says, Endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says, Six things of the Lord hates, yea, seven things an abomination to the Lord. And maybe we think we have our own list. Let me just give you a little peek what the lists were. He says, a proud look. That's what God hates. A lying tongue. Oh, we don't think of those things maybe as an abomination. And the last thing on that list was, and he that sows discord among the brethren. That's pretty strong language, actually, when God says he actually not just hates it, it's an abomination to him. When people try to cause discord among the brethren. It says the Lord hates that spirit that would cause someone to desire to cause unwarranted division among his people. In fact, uh, Jesus himself said in John chapter 17, I think it's probably the longest prayer that Jesus ever prayed, and it says that, that his people may be one even as we are one, when he's referring to his relationship with the Father, that, that the people of God will have the same kind of relationship, that oneness as Jesus has with his Father. The Lord loves when his people live in unity. This past summer, I, I had the incredible opportunity for nearly three weeks every morning to give devotions to our staff, to the core staff. And one of the things I remember just talking about, I said, today, today, make it your goal to add value to someone's life. Like today. I mean, some of our kids come from really challenging homes. So just imagine, you could add value to their life today. See, it's very easy. It's so easy to tear people down. That's easy. We see that being lived out every single day. You look on Facebook or blogs or social media or television or magazines or newspapers or college classrooms. It's easy to tear people down. But if you want to elevate the name of Jesus, brothers and sisters, to live in unity. You know, sometimes a first-year Bible college student comes back to his church and he's got some great learning and is all excited and he comes back and maybe tells you all the things that, you know, it's being done wrong. Or maybe an older person looks at a younger person who has all these great ideas of how to reach people and say, oh, we, 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 we don't do it that way. And it all revolves around preferences. Very rarely is it ever dealing with sinful things. It's, it's preferences. And sometimes we allow our preferences to cause to be quite divisive amongst his people. And I think to myself, we have a limited number of days. Why would we want to spend one minute doing that? Add value to people's life. I really do. I, I can honestly say before you, I have a heart that wants, that desires to see Temple be a church that really does reach out to a very messy world. I realize that makes us to be the potential of a very messy church, which excites me and scares me at the same time. But Jesus is always inviting people, the messy people to his table so he can make a masterpiece out of them. 
So that's why I say invest in others. Add value to their life. I like um, Craig Rochelle. Some of you probably know of him. He's the founding pastor of Life Church down in Oklahoma. I think he has, I don't know, just a small congregation, maybe 50, 60, I think 70,000 on a Sunday morning. And he said, and I resonate with this. He said that this is about their church. We love people, and we're going to reach people, and we're going to do anything we can short of sin to reach a world that is lost and separated from God. And honestly, that's our mission, isn't it? Our whole, uh, the main thing around here is that we want to connect people to Jesus. I just don't have much time. I know I have less time ahead of me than I did do behind me. So I just, I'm just trying to figure out how do I want to live that life with what is left. I, I just don't want to sit around. I don't. I, I, I have caught myself being caught up in conversations that aren't helpful. I have. But that is not what I want. Being conversations that would cause disunity. I remember when I was in college and in seminary, I remember saying to myself, I just, Lord, help me not to be involved in conversations that will divide the family. See, the thing is, you don't have to agree on everything. See, unity is not sameness, like we think the same, speak the same, dress the same, talk the same, come from the same background. No, no. Unity is being focused around the same, a purpose. We can be unified around the idea that we want to connect people to Jesus because it is a life-changing relationship, and we also know that life is so much better when we get to do it together. And we rally around that. Unity. The fact that we can have diversity in unity was makes, I think makes a union strong. Sometimes I, if I'm honest, which I like to be fairly honest, I get tired of this whole notion that if you don't think like me, therefore we're enemies. Which seems to be pervasive in our culture and I feel like maybe the church has even adopted that a little bit. Why can't we just admit, yeah, we have some differences, and that's okay. You know, I look at our city. Sometimes people will come to me and they'll say, have you heard what Blue Water's doing? Have you heard what Bethel's doing? Or, or, or Huron Baptist, or Missionary, or Central, or Riverside, or the Vineyard? I'm like, we're different. We love God, and we really want to make an impact, and we're going to probably do it different ways, and that's okay. That's okay. But we unify, we, we rally around the fact that we have a city that is desperate to know Jesus. I think sometimes maybe some of us might get caught up in some unhealthy conversations that honestly if they kind of tip the scale where they, they're not just healthy, unhealthy anymore, they actually become a little sinful because they're more gossipy, divisive, hurtful, arrogant conversations that kind of set us up for failure. So I pray for this local church, this body of believers, this church family, that we will develop an environment that is so full of grace. That doesn't mean that we ever, ever will sacrifice the truth. No. This is God's word. It is the truth, and we would never compromise what it says, but we will live it out in a world that does not need more religious people. It needs authentic people 
who will live out a truth of what Jesus meant to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus. Listen, time is too short. Time is way too short. And us who are a little older in life, we know how quick life passes by. Boy, it goes fast. And it seems once you get over that hump, it really goes fast. So it's too short for us to even to waste a minute. And so this is what I've been praying for myself, by the way. I pray for us as a church, but I pray this for me. That God, you would break, that you would break any prideful, arrogant, wanting my own way heart that would prevent me from living a godly life in this world. And I pray that for our church as well. That we would keep focused, that we wouldn't get sidetracked because we have a limited number of days. So be grateful. Today, be grateful. Be kind. Live humbly. I've also discovered, and I've seen it even this past summer as our day, like kindness. Boy, can change people. And an encounter with kindness can change people. You want wealth? You know where it can be found in relationships. So let's never want to be willing to sacrifice deep, fulfilling, God-honoring, open, honest, vulnerable relationships because we want to talk about people. Inside and outside of our doors. This is one thing that I know is for, for sure. People are more than the worst thing that they've ever done. I had someone just a couple months ago come up to me and says, did you know that this person, I said, wasn't that 21 years ago? They'll go, yes, but still. No, no, people are more than the worst thing that they've ever done. We have a limited number of days so let's just go out and add value to people's lives. Let's share with them what can change their life and not get sidetracked. Let's stay focused on what brings us together. And so with that, I, I said to Catherine, uh, two particular stories that really stood out uh, this past week. I said, Catherine, would you come and just share those today? Because those are the kind of stories that help us stay focused on what we're all about as a church. impact the children and families in Sarnia and change lives as kids and families come to Christ. Praise God. I'm just going to pause and tell you that they sent their children to camp this year and um, many, many years too. I think it's important for you to know. We also wanted to say thank you over and above for your over and above love and grace that you showed to our son at camp this year. It wasn't until Friday that his leader filled me in on his behavior throughout the week. And I cannot believe the example of Jesus' love that you showed him. My husband and I had no idea he was struggling so much with our family transitions. This is definitely seen in his impulsive behavior. 
We are just so thankful for the kindness, the patience, and grace he was shown. And we want to take a minute to express to you and to the team. We have always valued the influence of other godly men and women in our kids' lives. And we are just so grateful that in a time where our son needed it the most, the leaders were there to walk beside him. His leaders were amazing. You can tell that they were well-trained. And behind the scenes, they were praying for him, and they were brainstorming ways of how to help him at camp. We felt very loved by this. Thank you. Mm. My second story. My second story is um, there was one balloon that we didn't put up today, but we're now putting it up because it wasn't a camper that received Christ. This is a teenager. He's 15 years old. It's hard not to get emotional because I got to talk to him this week. He came to camp because a friend invited him and said, hey, I, I work at this amazing camp, and I think you would be a great helper. Would you just come alongside me and just help me with the kids? And he said yes. And he came the first week, and then he stayed the second week, and then he stayed the third week, and he doesn't come from a believing home, and he begged, he used those words, he begged his parents if he could come back a fourth week to help, and he did, and his parents allowed him. Well, on the second day of the fourth week of camp, at night by himself, he gave his life to Christ. And this 15-year-old guy came back the next day. He told his friends, he told me, I got to talk to him, and now he's being plugged into our high school ministry. We're just so thankful for what God did. His name is also included in the envelopes today. Mm. Honestly, those are the stories we want to celebrate. That's why we stay focused. That's why we stay unified as brothers and sisters around this this mission of connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Listen, our days are numbered. That's the reality. I don't like it any more than you, but we have a limited amount of time. I think the question that I want you to walk away with and wrestle with today is, what am I going to do with what I have left? So our prayer could be, God, help me to learn how to number my days so I can have a heart of wisdom. And then, it, then wisdom will tell you how to invest your life and where you can make a difference. Not at the end of your life, but where you can begin to make a difference today, tomorrow, this upcoming week, this month, the remainder of 2019, if God should tarry and allow us to live. The stories that Catherine talked about that's the kind of stories we want to celebrate week after week after week after week because we stay focused, we're unified, and we realize we have a limited amount of time and we're going to make the best of it. We're going to squeeze everything out of the day as we impact a city that God has put us and that we love. Let's pray.